0: Hello, and welcome to the Entertaining Abstracts podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got some super cool and spooky October stories for you guys. I'm going to start it out with an article about creepy crawly spiders, and this one came out in USA Today and was written by Jordan Mendoza. The title of the article is, Seeing More Spiders Crawling Around Your Home? Don't Panic! There's a Reason, experts say you may not be planning for too many guests in your home this fall but some surprise visitors could be wandering through your living room anyhow spiders autumn is a time when the leaves fall and temperatures drop but it's also when most spiders begin to mate and even though you're bound to see spiders in your home throughout the year the chances of seeing one sprint around the house heighten in the fall because it's likely the spiders are looking for partners Spiders typically mature in the spring or summer, says Jason Dunlop, a researcher for a museum in Berlin. When it gets closer to fall, mature male spiders that typically live only for a year leave their webs in search of a female. Females give off a chemical called a pheromone, or a kind of perfume, which the males can sense with special hairs in their legs the wandering males then basically sniff around for a mature female. Another reason the males wander around is that the females stay by their webs and conserve their energy needed to lay eggs. Once the males have developed functional sex organs, they stop looking for prey and instead seek out a partner. That's what will keep him going for the remainder of his life, which at that point is going to be relatively short because when you're not foraging for prey, you will eventually starve, say the experts. Female spiders can be found pretty much anywhere inside or outside of a home, which can be a rather daunting journey for a male spider trying to slide into those DMs, so to speak. But that's why if you happen to find one inside your home, it's most likely a male just looking for a female. There's this misguided perception that all of a sudden there are so many more spiders than there used to be, but that's not the case. They're just more noticeable because the males are moving around, say those experts. There's no exact timetable for when spiders will show up, but typically they'll be more noticeable in September through October, which just happens to be that Halloween season. But there's no need to be spooked. People shouldn't panic or call pest control. They're not interested in setting up shop in the house. Another reason you shouldn't worry is that nearly all house spiders are harmless. Experts say people shouldn't kill these spiders even if they can't stand them. Spiders get rid of many insects, including mosquitoes. The worst thing that a spider can do is give you a nasty surprise, say the experts, and spider bites are vanishingly rare in the life of an individual person. Experts say that if you can't really handle those spiders, just move them to the garage, basement, or the attic. They advocate for people getting to know them and becoming less afraid of them and keeping them around. That's a little bit of a stretch for me considering I cannot stand spiders, but maybe I might be willing to reconsider. Speaking of spiders, another interesting article came up the other day in the USA Today titled, Palm-sized invasive spiders are spinning golden webs across Georgia in extreme numbers. Holy moly, that sounds scary to me. But the article was written by Jay Cannon and it says basically a colorful invasive species of spiders known for spinning gold colored webs has been spreading across Georgia for years now and scientists say they aren't going anywhere the joro spider which is a palm sized arachnid with yellow stripes is native to asia but has been out in mass this year in northern georgia less than a decade after they were first discovered there Reports from the University of Georgia pegged the first sightings of the spider between 2013 and 2014, which is pretty recently in the grand scheme of things. But scientists used genetic analysis to confirm these sightings were Joro spiders. And the Georgia Museum of Natural History collections director tracked them as they spread throughout the state. The experts say the best guess for how the spiders made it to the US is by shipping container. The spider has since grown to extreme numbers in Georgia, with sightings in about 25 counties, according to these experts in etymology. The creepy crawlers have also been spotted in parts of South Carolina. With a length of almost three inches and eye-catching colors, the spider may seem a bit intimidating, but experts say they aren't interested in biting humans. I mean, these things are huge. If you see pictures of them, they're literally the size of an average person's palm, which is pretty scary, but rather these spiders serve as valuable pest control joro spiders present us with excellent opportunities to suppress pests naturally without chemicals say the experts but trying to convince people that having zillions of large spiders running around with their webs is kind of a hard sell but spiders feed on insects like mosquitoes flies and even stink bugs which which can be really helpful. And they think people need to make peace with these joral spiders and accept them because they're not going anywhere. And despite their invasive species tag, joral spiders don't need to be killed. In addition to the benefits they provide as pest control, experts believe their rapid population growth will soon be naturally suppressed. The spiders mostly die off in November, but not before laying sacks full of eggs, possibly adding to their population in the springtime. In their relatively short time in the u.s scientists from the university of georgia have not discovered any negative effects on local native species which was a concern about the Juro spider's arrival at first but experts at clemson university said they don't know if the species will bring negative impacts to the local ecology of nearby south carolina interesting stuff right okay got some mummies stuff for Halloween as well. I've got two articles about mummies this time around, so here you go. The first one is a mummy discovered at a vast burial ground of Egypt's pharaohs could change how ancient history is understood. A new analysis of an ancient Egyptian mummy suggests that advanced mummification techniques were used a thousand years earlier than previously believed. Rewriting the Understood History of Ancient Egyptian Funerary Practices The discovery centers around a mummy known as Kwai, believed to have been a high-ranking nobleman. He was excavated at the necropolis, a vast ancient burial ground of Egyptian pharaohs and royals near Cairo, in 2019. Scientists now believe that Kwai is much older than previously thought, dating back to Egypt's Old Kingdom, which would make him one of the oldest Egyptian mummies ever to be discovered. The Old Kingdom spanned 2700 to 2200 BCE and was known as the Age of the Pyramid Builders. Kuai was embalmed using advanced techniques thought to have been developed much later. His skin was preserved using expensive resins made from tree sap, and his body was impregnated with resins and bound with high-quality linen dressings. The new analysis suggests that ancient Egyptians living around 4,000 years ago— were carrying out sophisticated burials. This would completely turn our understanding of the evolution of mummification on its head. If this is indeed an Old Kingdom mummy, all books about mummification and the history of the Old Kingdom will need to be revised. Until now, experts thought the Old Kingdom mummification was relatively simple, with basic desiccation not always successful, no removal of the brain, and only occasional removal of the internal organs. Experts were surprised by the amount of resin used to preserve the mummies, which is not often recorded in mummies from the Old Kingdom. Typically more attention was paid to the exterior appearance of the deceased than the interior. This mummy was awash with resins and textiles and gives a completely different impression of mummification. In fact, it is more like mummies found a thousand years later. Experts told The National that the resin used would have been imported from the Near East, most likely Lebanon, demonstrating that trade with neighboring empires around that time was more extensive than previously thought. The discovery has been documented in National Geographic's new series, The Lost Treasures of Egypt, which starts airing in November. Tom Cook, who produced the series for Windfall Films, told The Observer that Ikram initially could not believe that this particular mummy dated back to the Old Kingdom because of the advanced mummification techniques. They knew that the pottery in the tomb was Old Kingdom, but they didn't think the mummy was from that period because it was preserved too well. But over the course of the investigation, they started to come around the idea. Kwai's ornate tomb featured hieroglyphics that suggested the burial took place during the 5th dynasty period spanning the early 25th to the mid-24th century BCE, according to the Smithsonian. Archaeologists also found pottery and jars used to store body parts during the mummification process that dated back to that time. The teams will conduct more tests to confirm that the remains do belong to Kwai, but they told the National that one possibility that... They told the National that one possibility was that another person could have been mummified and buried centuries later in a repurposing of the tomb. They remain hesitant until they can conduct a carbon dating process. Interesting stuff. And then one other article about mummies that I found super interesting is from People Magazine. And it's new details of an extraordinarily preserved 4,000 year old mummy emerged before Halloween. Jason Duane Holm was the author of this article. Scientists may have finally solved a decades-old mystery about the origins of a group of surprisingly preserved mummies found in China's Tarim Basin during the 1990s. In a report published in Nature, researchers announced that a group of mummies that many believed were migrants who had traveled to China to share farming practices may actually have been indigenous peoples who learned agricultural techniques from neighboring groups. Researchers used genomic analysis to trace the ancestry of the mummified farmers to stone-age hunter-gatherers who lived in Asia some 9,000 years ago. The mummies have long fascinated scientists and the public alike since their original discovery. Beyond being extraordinarily preserved, they were found in a highly unusual context, and they exhibit diverse and far-flung cultural elements. They found strong evidence that the mummies actually represented a highly genetically isolated local population. The mummies were first discovered in the early 20th century in a particular province in China, which is a desertous area that is known for being one of the most hostile places on earth. The bodies were buried in boat-shaped coffins and wrapped in cattle hide, which combined with the hot and salty environment of the desert kept them naturally preserved. They knew an awful lot about these people physically, but they knew nothing about who they were and why they were there. It's believed they were buried in the area starting 2,000 or more years ago. Scientists sequenced the genomes which contain all of the genetic information of an organism of 13 people who lived between 4,100 and 3,700 years ago and whose bodies were found in the lowest layers of the Tarim Basin cemeteries. They then compared the genetic profiles to more than 100 ancient populations and 200 modern groups of people and matched some of their genetic makeup to Bronze Age migrants from Central Asia who lived about 5,000 years ago. However, 13 of the mummies did not match this profile and were found to be related to hunter-gatherers who lived in southern Siberia and what is now northern Kazakhstan some 9,000 years ago. This was a region of incredible crossroads. There was vibrant mixing of north, south, east, and west going back as far as 5,000 years, according to anthropology professors. It makes it all the more paradoxical in a way that we have a community which is heavily integrated from cultural perspectives, but who maintain some very, very iconic and unique components of their own local ideology, local culture, local burial traditions, as well as seemingly unmixed genetic profiles that goes back even further into deep primordial ancestry. Interesting stuff. Next article. Crazy rats infest Arizona neighborhood after resident known for hoarding is found dead. How crazy does that sound? This article was written by Maria Paschini and came out just recently, but one Arizona neighborhood has been besieged by rats after a woman was found dead in her home earlier this month, which is incredibly sad. But on September 23rd, Megum Lortz said she called the police after noticing a strong smell coming from her next door neighbor's house, as well as the appearance of an alarming number of rats. Upon arrival, first responders had to use a robot and a drone, as they were not immediately able to get inside the home belonging to this woman, who was a known hoarder. Peoria Fire Medical and the police had a hazardous situation this morning, according to the media, and they showed the crews fully dressed in safety gear while a drone flew overhead. Conditions in the home were extremely bad, they noted, and another local resident, Justin Grubb, told the local news station that an officer described the situation as one of the worst things he's ever seen in 30 years on the service. The ground was literally moving in the house, said observers. The victim, whose body was already decomposed when police arrived, was identified as a woman in her 60s, according to the local news station. Officials told the outlet that the Peoria Fire Medical Department regularly responded to medical calls at the residence and believed that this woman likely died of natural causes. The Peoria Police Department did not immediately respond to the request for comments by the writers of this article, but the neighborhood has since been dealing with an infestation of hundreds of rats. I think there's a thousand of them in there, say the neighbors. They are crazy and they're all coming out now because they're not afraid, they're hungry. A lingering foul odor also remains. It's still a really, really bad smell, added another neighbor. It's enough for you to hold your nose when you walk by. As for what's next, local officials are working to resolve the problem, but warn that it is going to take some time. They've been trying to reach out to contractors and it's taken them until recently to find one, according to Human Services. A city spokesperson told the local news station that a hazmat team has been contracted to start boarding up the home and that traps and poison will fix the infestation after about a week. Then they'll start to work on cleaning out the residence. The Arizona Humane Society told the local news station they will go to the area on Wednesday to humanely trap as many of these animals as they can so they can be evaluated and given the best chance of survival. Holy moly. Can you imagine being a neighbor in that sort of a situation? That sounds terrifying. Another article. This one is about an alligator. and This one came out not too long ago. My boyfriend pointed this one out to me, but... How did artifacts thousands of years old turn up in a Mississippi alligator's stomach? This article was written by Brian Broom. What does a 750 pound alligator eat? Well, just about anything it wants. But items found in this particular Mississippi alligator's stomach defy the odds and date back thousands of years. Shane Smith, owner of Red Antler Processing in Yazoo City, said he was examining the contents of a 13-foot, 5-inch alligator that weighed 750 pounds. When he was doing this, he discovered two unusual objects. One he couldn't identify, but the other was clearly a broken stone arrowhead. The find was so unexpected, he almost didn't let the news out. At first I thought, I'm not posting this on Facebook, he said, because no one will believe it. Then he had second thoughts. This was way too cool not to post, ultimately, he said. The story first came to unfold in April when a wild game processor in South Carolina reportedly opened the stomach of an alligator and found some unusual items. The curiosity struck me when I saw a post online about someone finding dog tags in an alligator's stomach. I'm one that doesn't believe in fake news. To satisfy that curiosity, Smith decided to examine the contents of the larger alligators he processed, The first was a 13-foot, 2-inch, 787-pound gator. He found a bullet in it that had not been fired from a gun. And he didn't know how it got there. The second alligator he opened, which was harvested at Eagle Lake, contained many of the things the first did, including bones, hair, feathers, and stones. But then something else caught his eye. Everybody was standing around like I was opening a Christmas present, the man said. We kind of put it all in a bin. And then they looked it over and saw a rock with a different tint to it. It was the arrowhead. They were dumbfounded. It was just disbelief, they said. There's no way that this could have been an arrowhead. Your first thought was that some sort of a Native American had shot it in the stomach, but this could not have been the case because of the age of the arrowhead. The best hypothesis is wherever he scooped up these other rocks, he got that Indian point. He joked about it and said, I'm probably the only person on earth to pull an arrowhead out of an alligator's stomach. Experts say, after examining a photograph of the point, they estimate this particular arrowhead to have been made between 5000 and 6000 BC. That's the latter part of the early archaic and early part of the middle archaic periods. How the base is made is telltale in estimating the time period. They also noted that the object is not an arrowhead. It's a point used on an early weapon that launches a spear using a second piece of wood with a cup on one end which acts as a lever to increase the velocity. They called it an antel dart point. People think all heads are arrowheads, but these would be little bitty points. As bizarre as the find is, it was about to get even stranger because they found a heavy tear-shaped object roughly one and a half inches in length. Both he and the hunter, who was permitted to harvest the alligator, thought it was something more modern, a lead weight used for fishing. It's heavy like lead, they said, and looks like it has two holes in it. It's got a little hole and a bigger hole on top. The researchers said that they looked online to try to figure out what the object was and couldn't find anything to identify it. Experts say, though, that it's known as a plummet and dates back to the late archaic period, or about 1700 BC. The weight is accounted for because it's made of hematite, an iron oxide traded between early groups, which shines when it's polished. But how did these objects get into the alligator's belly? The Mississippi Department of Wildlife explained that very hard objects, typically stones, aid the reptiles in digestion. Alligators, like other animals such as birds and other reptiles, are known for ingesting grit and rocks to help with digestion. We know alligators and crocodiles do that, however alligators differ from fowl like chicken and ducks. Those animals have gizzards and the grit and sand is stored there to help grind seeds and grains they consume. Alligators don't have gizzards and the stones go straight into the stomach. Sticks, wood, and things that they can't digest go there, and they found a piece of cypress in an alligator's stomach that was 15 inches long. So that explains a little bit about how those things got there, not so much necessarily what those things are, but it's still interesting nonetheless. Article for the afternoon I found particularly interesting and sad at the same time, but it's titled, Rescuers discovered two shipwrecked children clinging to their dead mother who had saved their lives by drinking her urine to breastfeed them. The article was written by Sophia Ankle. A woman from Venezuela has been hailed a hero for keeping her children alive after the boat they were on capsized, leaving them all to drift in the sea for four days. Marielle Cocon, her husband and their two children, aged six and two, were on a pleasure cruise around the Tortuga Island in Venezuela with five other people when a large wave split the boat's hull apart on September 3rd. The incident forced the group to spend four days adrift on a small lifeboat in the scorching sun. To keep her children alive, Cocon drank her urine, which allowed her to breastfeed the children. The children, identified as Jose David and Maria Beatriz, were discovered alive by rescuers early this week. They were found clinging to their mother, who had died from dehydration. The mother who died kept her children alive by breastfeeding them and drinking her own urine, says a representative. She died three or four hours before the rescue from dehydration after drinking no water for three days. The children's nanny, 25-year-old Veronica Martinez, was also found alive in the lifeboat. She was treated for first-degree burns and dehydration. The other five people, including the children's father, have not yet been found. The INEA spokesperson said there's very little chance of finding them at this point. This woman's death has shocked the nation though. Her funeral was held on September 11th and was broadcast live. Her father said the pleasure cruise was simply a family trip to entertain the children. What a sad story indeed. This article came out a month or so ago, but it's still super relevant for the holiday season. And it's titled, This woman tells the stories of people who died 100 to 300 years ago and the internet can't get enough. No author was listed on this article. Silas Reed was 11 weeks old when he died. And at the time, the only words 19th century medicine had to describe his cause of death was lung fever, which in hindsight is assumed to be a name for pneumonia. Unlike Silas, his older brother Freddie lived to be eight years old before he died from typhoid fever a year later. Now, nearly 150 years later, over 25 million viewers tune in to watch volunteer Caitlin Abrams clean the brothers' gravestones and tell their stories. These are my favorite graves to clean, Caitlin said. The ones that are pretty much unreadable. It feels really good to give this person their name back and know that someone is mentioning their name 150 odd years after they died. Caitlin, who volunteers for four cemeteries and cleans the historic stones of everyday people who died between 1700 and early 1900s, started sharing the stories of the dead May 28, 2021. About two and a half months later, her TikTok account has skyrocketed to host almost a million followers. With the use of records housed by the cemetery as well as Ancestry.com, FamilySearch.org, Newspapers.com, and FultonHistory.org, Caitlin has a knack for piecing together the lives of those who were here before us. Sometimes she's able to find their images or connect them with family buried nearby. Other times she simply has their name and cause of death. Either way, watching as she scrubs away accumulated dirt and moss, revealing a name underneath that was once etched for grieving families to remember, it's hard not to be fascinated. When considering the most interesting stories behind stones She's Clean, Caitlin shared, I cleaned stones for two brothers, both named David James. They never met. The older David died at age 12 of rheumatic fever and shortly after he died, his parents had another child that they named David James as well. They lost him young to diphtheria and then lost the boy sister, Sarah shortly afterward to typhoid fever. Her stone reads, our happy hopes are buried here, which is pretty grim. These parents lost three children to three separate diseases within the span of a decade. And their mother went on to live another 30 years. It's something that's unimaginable to many of us today, but was more or less daily life for those people back then. Caitlin further reflected on why so many people are drawn to her videos, saying, Over the past few decades, especially, death moved from something that everyone experienced on a daily basis in their own home to something that happens primarily to the elderly and far away in a hospital or a nursing home. Of course, it's absolutely incredible, the progress that modern medicine has made and we should all be thankful for it. But it does mean that we, especially younger generations, keep death at a distance. Being a self-proclaimed history and genealogy buff was what led the 35-year-old to her first cleaning. Previously working with Find a Grave, a website that connects those searching for images of their loved ones' graves with volunteers who live near the desired cemetery and are willing to take and send photos of the stone, Caitlin was tasked with finding a stone that ended up being unreadable. So after being asked, she learned how to safely clean it. I read multiple sources, saw videos online, spoke to my local cemetery association for ideas and advice, and then assembled my cleaning kit, she said. I started with another stone in May and then turned to the requested stone once I felt confident. I developed an interest in gravestones iconography and what stones can and can't tell us, she continued. Cleaning stones was something I could do myself and help preserve and protect those stones for others to learn about and enjoy." Where I live, most of the history and record-keeping is maintained by older, retired people, and I believe it's time for those of us in the younger generations to begin taking up the mantle. Her ever-growing audience appreciates the new life Caitlin breathes into the stones, preserving not only the rock, but the stories of lives once lived, which makes them worth remembering. And others praise her efforts beyond the grace it grants the dead, but also for what her actions would mean to their families. For those interested in grave cleaning, Caitlin suggests building a kit. Hers features a D2 biological solution, natural fiber and acrylic fiber brushes, wooden paint sticks, plastic putty knives, lots of water, and a garden sprayer. Never a power washer for old stones. From there, volunteers should learn the best cleaning practices and seek permission from local cemeteries. If you're interested in keeping up with Caitlin's personal cleanings and the stories of lives remembered, you can definitely follow her on her TikTok account. Very, very interesting stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed this special Halloween October episode, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone.